This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. Coming from a long line of musicians and artists, our guest today has been praised by the New York Times as sensational in concert and as a striking virtuoso by the Los Angeles Times. Her awards and accomplishments are way too long to list, but suffice it to say that she's performed as a solo artist and as a chamber musician at some of the world's most renowned venues, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, Suntory Hall at Tokyo. The list goes on and on and on. She's serving as a visiting professor at Tel Aviv University here in Israel, and she has been so kind and brave as to accept our invitation and join us on the podcast today. We are thrilled to be joined by the amazing cellist, Christina Ryko Cooper. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> so uh, what, what, what got into you that you decided to leave your... Uh, your home today and go out into the zombie infested streets and <laughs> face the, the brave world. <laughs> it's a scary time, isn't yeah, it? it? Is, I it have is. to say, um, look, I actually think Israel is doing pretty well to tell you the truth. Right. And yeah. the numbers have been pretty encouraging. So that's one thing. But also, I wanted to have some fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been you too know? long. It's been too long. People forget yeah. we deserve to have some fun. Yeah. yeah. I forgot how to interact with people. I know. I don't. I mean, like, I walked. Not that yeah. you were. I, didn't, so- <laughs> I wasn't so good before. <laughs> but I now mean. I go downstairs and it's just, like, frightening. I don't know yeah. how to, you know. Well, no, it's that weird thing when you walk out and, like, you're trying to avoid people. Yeah. So it's not even, you know, the, the whole atmosphere is so bizarre that yeah. you, you really do. You forget how to... <laughs> and you feel there's it's there's this weird thing where you know it's become normal now to cross the street anytime yeah. you see it, right yeah which used to be like a rude thing to do right <laughs> it was like it's almost like reminiscent of racism Absolutely. right where you would see someone of a different race and you would cross the street because i'm not going to walk on the same side of the sidewalk so but now, now it's, it's like, like you just cross and i so feel now it's okay to be racist <laughs> I mean, if you're doing it based on race, that's probably a bad idea. But nobody would know. <laughs> but it's like, it's become normal to be rude, which is, right? Because yeah. we would try to avoid people and like... Or maybe now it's just a, like, now you have a reason to be rude. You, if you were rude before, now you've got <laughs> now an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the germophobes are the big winners here, right? Oh, mm. absolutely. Now you can distinct... <laughs> Are you kidding? This is like their worst nightmare. They're is living it? through their worst they nightmare. They don't need to shake anybody's hand anymore. Yeah, but you know, it's yeah. like now oh, just leaving. I have some close people that shall remain nameless that are just thrilled with the idea that they will never have to hug or kiss or shake hands with anybody <laughs> ever again. And that's not me. So They're so happy. I, I wanted to ask, how, how did you choose the cello or did the cello choose you and did music choose you or vice versa? Fair question. Um, so I come from a, a long line of musicians, actually only on one side. My father's a pianist and my mother's a violinist, but my father's the first musician in his family. But my mother, her father was a famous composer and her mother was a singer. And 
my great-grandfather was a famous poet, blah, blah. So I come from a long line of artists on that side. And I think the real answer is I was surrounded by music from a really early age. You know, from the minute I was born, I was hearing music all the time. My parents were practicing. Um, I heard records. And I fell in love with music from... I mean, I can't remember not loving music. And my parents, like... Uh, like most Asian mothers, force their kids to <laughs> play the piano. Ta so what they call tiger mom now, or yes, I yeah. guess so. But my mom is more like a wannabe tiger mom. Okay. She's like too good natured and happy go lucky to really be a tiger mom. But like in her heart, she like she wants to think she's a tiger mom. But um, I had to play piano when I was little, and I kind of hated it actually. Um, but I did it. I was determined. I guess I was talented enough that I made some progress. But at a certain point, um, I heard a cello. Um, I heard an incredible piece by Franz Schubert called the Schubert Cello Quintet, and it was some of the most beautiful music I'd ever heard in my life, and just the, the sound of the cello. To me, it sounds like a human voice, like a beautiful male tenor human voice, and there's something so emotional about it that I really, I fell in love with the instrument then, and I, was, I decided I was, what, six or seven that I wanted to play the cello. Oh, wow. That's but early. I was, that's early, but, you know, no, we started early. I mean, I started the piano at five, and even that's a little late. Um, but I was small. It was really small for my age, and you can see my hand is quite small. So the cello teacher in my town didn't let me start till I was 10. So I took the piano pretty seriously up to that point, but as soon as I could switch, I switched. And, but yeah. small hands is a problem for the piano as well, no? Very much a problem. That's why they yeah. knew I would never become a pianist, okay. ever, ever. I tried the violin. I hated the violin. So. And, and <laughs> is there like a special uh, cello for, for kids? How does it work? Yes, they have, just like the violin, you can get a half size, okay. a quarter size, a sixteenth size. <laughs> so I started on a half size. Okay. But you never, like, you never thought you might be a, a computer engineer or a, oh. or a truck driver or, uh, well, A, I already told you about mayor. my horrible driving. I run okay. into almost everything in sight. Um, so, no. And if you all ever saw my technological capabilities, you would also <laughs> see that doing computer science or engineering was not in the cards. So it was, <laughs> it was clear from age six you knew that you wanted to be a cellist. That's pretty incredible. I'd like to be less boring and say that, yeah, I had these other great dreams I mean, I guess at a certain point, like everyone, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I didn't really think that was going to happen. But yeah, no, no, I think from always, always. That's amazing. It's a very competitive field though, right? Or is it? I it, mean, it I is. imagine like dancing, you got to excel. Like if you're not the best of the best, you know, it's either that you make it or you don't. Well, that, that can fuck up a kid. Oh, <laughs> yes, I, I have I have my, a fair share of uh, crazy friend people. Yes. No, <laughs> no uh, to, to be fair, there, there is a lot of pressure. There is because a lot of it is expected of you from a very early age. And in order to even excel in music or I think anything that you start from a very young age, you have to be pretty driven. So you have high expectations for yourself as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're doing something that you love, mm, Again, that's the only thing that I knew. It's the only thing I wanted. It didn't even occur to me to do something else. So, so there was never a breaking point or... A... Well, every day when I practice, I get frustrated. Yeah? yeah. St st <laughs> still? Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Wow. <laughs> when was kind of the moment of 
where you felt like the first moment where you felt like i guess all this all this practice and all this uh all this uh, investment in this uh in music paid off when was the first moment the first time well i mean that only happens very rarely you know <laughs> only very sporadically um when did i first feel completely fulfilled i guess there was something that you hear athletes talk about right when they get into the zone mm-hmm. do you know what i'm talking about when i mm-hmm. say that they 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 feel like they sort of rise above themselves and they're in this special sphere where they feel like they can do anything once in a while when you're playing music once in a while you feel that connection to the music a connection to almost spiritually to something the connection to the audience and you feel like everything's working and you you feel the music with the people that you're playing with there's something so special and uh beyond the normal realms of existing i think that's so incredible that it's almost like you live for that moment and that does happen once in a while it's rare (laughs) but it does happen is it an egotistical experience or is it something that's even like it's outside of you well the egotistical thing is like a separate thing like once in a while you're like yeah i aced it (laughs) (laughs) but like most people have no idea whether you aced it or not so that's not really (laughs) the thing it's like a personal egotistical thing but no i guess what i'm talking about is more of a like a almost a spiritually fulfilling thing sounds like an out-of-body thing yeah almost where you feel like Every part of you is being used and in, 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 as a conduit, it's, it, it's all working together in the right way. Wow. <laughs> so what kind of music, because I read that you do all kinds of things. Yes, I so do. I do. You started from classic? <laughs> yes, classical? very much so. I had about as strict a classical upbringing as one could have. <laughs> and then what happened? <laughs> I don't know that anything happened, but um, uh, when I was at Juilliard, my first couple years at Juilliard, um, I had a professor who was in charge of the avant-garde new music program there. And he also had a professional ensemble that would go on tour and do some really cool things. And I don't know why he picked me, but at some point he's like, hey, you know, Christina, do you want to come audition? And, you know, you know, we need a cellist for this next tour in Europe. And I'm like 19 years old. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I had no idea what I was doing. But he threw some like crazy music at me where I'm like making all these bizarre sounds and faces and like dancing on the stage, like, you know, doing really crazy things. And I felt something very freeing about that, which kind of led me to be look outside of just my classical world. And it sort of opened up the universe for me in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what started my path off of just the regular classical straight and narrow road Mm -hmm. um and then so that's like sort of the avant-garde part but uh, a couple of years later there was a japanese production company um they put together this other half japanese girl and me and to make a long story short we ended up making these very very expensive videos and dvds all over italy and all over new york where they spent millions of dollars literally millions of dollars filming these things and they had us playing not just classical, but they would have us playing things like Take the A Train and some Beatles tunes and like a little like crossover stuff, stuff that I had never done before. Things I didn't really enjoy doing, to tell you the truth, at the time. But then we started doing these huge tours in Asia, and the audiences would just go nuts over this stuff. You know, I, I would play these chamber music concerts with a string quartet where we would rehearse 20 hours a week, and there'd be like four people in the audience, right? 
<laughs> and then we do these crossover concerts and there's like thousands of people just going nuts. Um, there was something about that that I, you know, I learned a lot from and, and there were certain aspects of it that I enjoyed a lot. So I took from that experience and took the best parts of that and moved moved on with that part of it and into today, my music. Would you, would you play in a pop album like? Or? I would, I would, and I have done some kinds of pops and definitely some crossover. But now, you know, I choose what I want to do, other than having like a Japanese producer tell me what I'm going to play. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So I, I understand that you have a cello that has a special story behind it. Right? Uh, are you talking about my Prince Charming? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, there's a Prince Charming. There's also a Bonaparte. Oh, no? boy. Yeah. I better make sure that the Bonaparte doesn't hear this story because I don't want to make him feel bad because I have two cellos. Yeah. I see. So, yes. I... Before you tell it, I got to ask, did Stradivarius make cellos? Indeed, he did. Um, but again, look at my hand. Do you see how mm. small it is? Do you see how small this pinky is? I could never play a Stradivarius. They're too long. Their standard uh, sides are too long. So, okay. My, so now to, to your. My Prince Charming? Yes. So, um, yes, I have what. I have a Guadagnini, most gorgeous Guadagnini in the world. I, except for Stradivarius, I'm completely ignorant. So, you got to explain <laughs> the meaning. Okay. Okay. So, Guadagnini was um, one of the greatest makers ever. And the reason that his cellos are so famous is that they're slightly smaller scaled. Like, they're, it's slightly smaller. Often, when you have a smaller instrument, you have a smaller sound. It's not as rich. But Guadagnini's, I don't know what he did, whether it's in the varnish, in the workmanship, the wood, a combination of all of it, probably. Um, they have unbelievable sound, unbelievable production, unbelievable volume and depth. And um, I have one of the best ones. Okay, so <laughs> From how, 1743. How did it get... 1743, wow. yes. And my other cello, by the way, is a very nice cello also, and that's the one that I've had for many years. It's a William Forrester from 1786. And it's, you know um, exactly the history of, of the cello? Who sure, played it? Sure, sure. I mean, pa cellos like that are like artworks. You know, they have papers, and they have a trail of who owned it before. So this one, actually, the Guadagnini, um, who I usually called Guandango, but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> or the big G. Um, he, uh, yeah, he was, he's actually officially called the ex-Havemeyer Guadagnini because there was a very famous banker <laughs> who bought that cello, and he also bought the two most famous cellos in the world, two, the two most famous Stradivariuses in the world, so he obviously had a great eye for cellos, and so it's called the ex Havemeyer Guadagnini. And I understand the other one that you have was the Bonaparte, the Bonaparte <laughs> yeah. was, was commissioned by the King of England? Prince, yes. The Prince of England. Yes, yes, indeed. He yeah. And he played cello? That we don't actually know. What you do know that Prince Charles is a cellist, right? No. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, but no, we don't know if the prince actually ever played the cello, but we do know that it was in the royal vault. So. Ah, okay. And it was, it was barely played at all before I, I had it. I see. And it's also a very lovely cello, a really, really lovely cello. How does it work? Uh, like, it's fascinating because I know that with Stradivarius, you don't actually own them, but 
they borrowed them to, to you for a lifetime or something like that? Well, right? there are various, like I've borrowed cellos uh, often, like Juilliard, for example, owns a bunch of cellos. I borrowed one of theirs for a long time. Um, there's a foundation in California called the Colburn Foundation. I borrowed cellos from them. The problem with these instruments is that they're very, very, very expensive. Yeah. Yeah, so. But these are yours or uh, you I'm gonna own them? to give them back? Uh, okay, I'm no. <laughs> I'm gonna play coy with that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And what? Uh, and another technical question. What? What's the? Uh, how can I say the practical meaning of of owning an in such an instrument? Like you need to store it somewhere, right? You need to. You can't take it. With, like it's yeah, a, there how is. How do you take it from a country to country? It's a well, whole procedure. Well, it's insured. It's it's insured far more than I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary, though, <laughs> right? To yeah, travel I, I, with it and I guess at to this hold it. Point, <laughs> to hold it, yeah. I'm used to it. You know, I'm used to it. So to me, it's not scary. But oh, I do have a good story about the first Bonaparte, which is he's also a very nice cello. Um, I'd won a big award from Sony. Um, I was still at Juilliard. And I was on my way to the awards ceremony where I had to play, and I had just sent the down payment on Bonaparte. I got to the building. It was a brand-new building on Madison Avenue in New York. The strap broke on my case. It was a carbon fiber case. I fell with a big plop on the ground. Oh, no. I bounced three times, and I got a big crack on the back of the cello. And it was in the shop for nine months. Oh my God! Up to and that point, it had it. been a perfect cello. Like nothing had happened to it for seventeen for almost three hundred years. <laughs> and I had it for years. like a couple of days. <laughs> see that you can see a pattern. My driving, carrying cellos. Right. Wow. <laughs> you need a cello carrier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my husband always he says I need to be like surrounded by like a big. Arable. Fluffy, yeah. yeah, just roll around <laughs> yeah. in a big balloon. <laughs> wow. So, okay, so um, uh, you also have an interesting story in the sense that you didn't always have a connection to Israel, but uh, yeah. somewhere in the middle of your life, you all of a sudden uh, moved here, and uh, how did that happen? Well, okay, so what is this in connection to the Sugihara project you want me to talk about or just in general? Just, I life? mean, just in general, okay. right? You, you also converted to Judaism. Yes. Yes, I sure did. So, um, and then about the project. <laughs> okay. So yes, I mean, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but in the classical world, I don't know if you know, but Israelis are considered like the commandos, right? Like, like Israelis have a really great reputation. Like, the most famous classical musicians in the world in past decades, like Perlman, Zuckerman, they're all Israeli, right? They all have this like killer technique and are sort of like monsters of the instruments. Um, so it's, and I went to school with a lot of Israelis and in music I always encounter a lot of Israelis. Um, but it never occurred to me in a billion years that I would ever move here, <laughs> right? That just wasn't something that was in my, in my brain. Um, but, uh, Yes, at a certain point, you know, um, I'd been dating my husband for, well, he wasn't my husband then, for a bit, and we started talking about conversion, and that took a long, that, was a, that wasn't a five-minute conversation, that was a rather long, Were you religious before? Not in any way. Atheist? Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say but, atheist, yeah, not but religious. agnostic. Yeah, agnostic. nothing, nothing, okay. nothing at all. Um, and in fact, my name, Christina... Right. My <laughs> parents 
are, I'd say they're atheists, like they hate religion. So they made a very special point of spelling my name with a K instead of a CH so it wouldn't have any connotations. They just wanted the sound of the name. They did okay. say, but I can assure you in my conversion process, that was no help at all. <laughs> right. The rabbis were not sympathetic to that at all. So yes, I did, um, um, as I became more... Uh, acquainted with Judaism and um, as I learned more I became more curious about it um, I did start going through the conversion process and I went through a pretty intense one um, at the time I was on tour all the time so I couldn't take regular classes so I would have a tutor that I worked with so altogether I'd say it took about three years all said and done by the from beginning wow. to end um, and all you, those men you mentioned though it was a difficult process I mean at first were you kind of like uh i guess were there objections you didn't want kind of or i mean because you you know you were before you didn't have these beliefs like well i guess there's the intellectual rigor of the religion always, always appealed to me so i liked studying about it i actually mm -hmm. i actually really enjoyed studying about studying it but i mean just brass tacks the issue was that i'm a performer you become shomer shabbat that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so I can't perform on Friday nights. There are a lot of Saturday nights I can't perform either. That's a good 70, 80% of concert performing because a lot of concerts happen on the weekend. So I'd say that was really the big, big... You had to give it up. Um, well, I haven't given up performing, but it's, it's, it makes performing much more difficult now. I mean, it has to be very carefully planned. Right. Because I... Look... When people convert, there are, all, there are all kinds of variations. They are those who convert. Right. But then, you know, they choose what to, after they get the stamp, right? right? They choose what to keep and what to give up. Right. And they choose their own path, right? Because right. they're not obligated to the rabbis anymore. Right. But you, I understand you chose differently. Like you, you decided yeah. to stick with the... Well, yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that's how I'm bringing up my family and that's... Mm -hmm. How my husband was brought up, I, I think he turned out pretty great, and I wouldn't be sad if my kids turned out the I way see. he did. Um, no, and there was something about the society and the community that I really, um, I felt. I really, I, I felt in my bones. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that, you know, people are like, oh my God, three years, like how, why, you know, why did it take so long? Wasn't that horrible? I'm really glad it took three years. I think that if it had taken a year and like, like oh you're a Jew I'd just be like oh okay you know <laughs> but but because it took so long and I really sort of immersed myself in it it felt quite natural by the time the process had actually you know finished hmm. I mean the process is never finished but you know what I mean as far as once I actually had the Beit Dean and everything <laughs> wow and but then coming and then you decided to come to Israel Yes, yes, we decided to come to Israel. How has it been? Well, Israel is an amazing place, of course, and as you guys know right now, it's a much better place to be than on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where there really are zombies walking around. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I heard they're taking down the, the tent hospitals in Central Park in a few days, so that's good. Now, if they could just stop having the vultures flying over the city, that would be good. <laughs> wow. Wait, how, how long have you guys been living here in Israel? Oh, for a while now. 13 years. Oh, wow. 13 years. All my kids were it's born like here. On Wikipedia, it says you're, on, you're living between the cities. But. Well, I mean, up until quite recently, <laughs> yeah. we were going back and forth a lot. I'd right. say it was in New York at least once a month. 
that we still have an apartment there and everything. Uh, okay. Um, but but yeah. now it's a problem. Okay, so let's talk about the project. Tell us about it. This okay. The Sugihara project. Sugihara. Yes, yes. What is it? Well, first, I guess I should explain who Chuni Sugihara was. Yeah. Um, so Chuni Sugihara was the Japanese vice council to Lithuania during World War II. And through issuing thousands of visas that weren't sanctioned by the Japanese government, he saved thousands and thousands of Jews, um, including my husband's father and his brother. Now, I had never heard of Sugihara. Have, have you guys heard of Sugihara before? No. no. Yeah, see, I think he's... It's we a, heard about... Here it's known about Asian countries, uh, Japan, China, and the Philippines that saved Jews. But okay. the specifics... Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I, I think I recall hearing about something like a, a Japanese uh, Schindler, but I don't know if that's this... Probably... From okay. this, right? Uh, this, it's yes. this guy? <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay. yes, yes. I, w- I would assume, yes. And I was going to say, actually, that like everybody has heard of Oscar Schindler because of the Steven Spielberg film. And, mm-hmm. But I think very few, rel- relatively very few people uh, know about Sugihara. And also in Japan? In Japan, more people know about Sugihara now. But that's really also because of a movie that was made about four years ago. Actually, mm-hmm. that was very popular in Japan. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a little glamorized version of of the story but it was popular in japan so tell us about the movie the movie i mean which movie no the project the project oh <laughs> okay, no, you, okay. Said, you said the movie well no 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 so in japan they made a feature film about sugihara okay. so in japan he's become a more well-known whereas before not that many people in japan had heard of him mm-hmm. either okay. so the way that i came upon well even the idea for doing this project is that I'd known that Len, my husband, that his father and part of his family had survived the war. And I knew vaguely something about they lived in Japan for a while and then China. So these are two brothers out of six siblings. Um, Two of them ended up in Lithuania escaping from Poland. And uh, Sugihara saved them with issuing these visas. And they did indeed end up in Japan and then in China. And um, when I first heard about this story, I was really quite taken with it. You know, being half Japanese myself, A, I found it fascinating that it was a Japanese man that saved my husband's father. B, as I learned more about Sugihara and being half Japanese myself and knowing what the Japanese culture means, it really fascinated me to think that in Japan, Japan's like the opposite of Israel, right? The total mm-hmm. opposite. Here, the individual is is valued, also America, but also you never take yes for a yes or a no for a no. You want to know why, you challenge it, you question everything, anything, authority, authority? What's authority, right? <laughs> In Japan, you everything is for the greater good. Every You, you, you never want to stick out. Sticking out is is considered horrible. You know, you you, you want to fit in. You mm-hmm. always want to make everything smooth and fit in. In fact, saying no is considered rude in Japan. People mm-hmm. don't say no. You rarely hear people say no. They may mean no. And if you're Japanese talking to another Japanese person, you will know that they mean no. But you don't actually say no because that's considered rude. Mm-hmm. That's why there's a lot of cultural problems in Japan. <laughs> it's actually a faux pas to say no. Right. Exactly. Wow. 
So to think that this man, this quiet Japanese man, defied his government, defied authority to write these thousands and thousands and thousands of visas to save a bunch of refugees, Jews that really had nothing to do with him. Really, he had no connection to them. But it was the single act of humanity and kindness and just doing what was right. He was not a hero. He wasn't some outsized character like Schindler. He didn't draw attention to himself. In fact, after he did this, he he never talked about it. He never told anybody about it. And because he was sort of squelched by the Japanese government after he did this, in fact, he was shamed and sort of pushed out of his position and given menial jobs for the rest of his life. It was It was almost like a shameful thing. And he said something to his son, who I've been in contact with throughout this project. Um, he said something that I found very touching, which was that his sons didn't know about it either. But at a certain point, the Israeli ambassador to Japan sought out Sugihara, went to go find him, had a hard time finding him, but finally was able to track him down because he was a Sugihara survivor. So he wanted to go and thank him for saving his life. Sugihara was astounded that he had saved anyone. And what he said was, my great hope was that I could maybe save three or four people. If I'd saved one person, it was worth everything they did, putting my family at risk, taking mm -hmm. my career, making the rest of my life very difficult. If I could have saved one, he ended up saving thousands, thousands. And just if you think of all the children that are born from all of the survivors, including my three children, right? They're in a way, they're a second generation survivor. It's, it's really quite amazing. And just his, his, that combination of steely honesty and compassion shelled in this Japanese demeanor of quietness and modesty, uh, but that inner rebellion, I just found something, again, something very personally uh, uh, appealing or, or it, it really touched me in a way especially during these times right now mm -hmm. you know I don't mean corona I mean I mean all the world refugee problems with all the immigration problems just to think that this one man made such a huge difference now being a cellist and not a writer and not a screenplay writer and not Steven Spielberg you know what what could I do to express something that to me was so important Music, right? That's the only thing I know how to do. So um, there was also something about the parallels of like finding myself, like the two parts of myself too that is sort of put together in this project. Sort of my the the ethnic parts or the or other parts. Sort of trying to find the cultural ties between uh, Judaism okay. and yeah. Japan and like the the people and the. Um, on both sides of the equation, the, the culture, the, the finding the ways to put it together. So I decided I wanted to commission a piece um, for solo cello and orchestra. And now it's turned out to be such a huge piece. It's also going to be solo cello, orchestra, and choir. So oh, it's going to wow. be a huge, huge piece. Um, and that's basically the project. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it started. Where, where is it today? So I searched far and wide for who I thought would be the best composer for this piece. Um, obviously, 
it should be someone either Jewish or Japanese, right? Just because otherwise there's a, I mean, it didn't have to be, but I just thought that it would be perhaps more um, personal to the composer if they felt some kind of personal tie to it. Mm -hmm. So um, a very, very um, uh, a, a young, well, my age composer, Lara Auerbach, uh, we were actually in school together at Juilliard. Um, she's very successful. She's doing unbelievable things right now. She's always doing these incredibly cool projects gorgeous, gorgeous composer. Um, she's Russian Jewish and she, um, she's agreed to do it. So, uh, oh, wow. she's starting work on it right now. And we have our world premiere set in place in Lithuania in the very town that he wrote all the visas in. And the, the name of the town was Kovno, now it's Kaunas. Um, it will be the European cultural capital in 2022. So like like it's Everything, going to be able to do, it's coming together right, yeah. and it's going to be one of the big featured productions for that year. Uh, was this planned? The fact that it's uh, coinciding with the European cultural was it my plan? Yeah, no, I mean, it's sad. Actually, no, we didn't know. Like wow. when when we were calling up the different orchestras to you know see who might be who would want to take on this project and perhaps be co commissioners on it. Um, then they're like, oh, well, this is perfect. You know, this will fit right in with like. I, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to, to music pieces and classical music. So yeah. just explain to me like a child, what does it mean? It, it will be a, a piece of how, what's the length? When it's going to be long. It'll be long. It'll be about 40 minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's a piece. It's one piece of 40 minutes. Yes. Okay. With a cello, uh, a choir, and orchestra. An orchestra. Okay. Oh, and I forgot to tell you something quite exciting. So we we have to have people and organizations co-commission because it's expensive <laughs> to to get a piece like this written and produced and done. And also, we needed the sort of cultural support. Um, so we've reached out to various organizations, and Yad Vashem um, is has agreed to be the principal global commissioner for the wow. piece. So I wanted to ask you if he, he's, he, was he recognized as yes. the righteous? Yes, yes, yes. So definitely. his family came and, and they yes. planted the tree yes. and everything. Yes. What was his post in Lithuania? He was the, um, um, oh, I'm losing my mind right now. I just said it. In the ambassador, <laughs> yeah. he was the, in the... Not the ambassador. Not cultural, the ambassador. Cultural attaché? No, he's no. not their cultural attaché. He was, you're just going to have to let my brain okay. be triggered okay. for a minute. But what, what happened with him <laughs> after the war? Um, he was basically fired. Ah, really? Basically so it was fired. discovered that... that yes, he... I mean, he went against his government. I mean, mm -hmm. he was not allowed to do what he did. It's a little more nuanced than that, actually. I mean, he definitely had help from various people along the way. He couldn't have done it all alone. For example, all the refugees had to go through Russia and the Trans-Siberian Railway to get to the coast to go to Japan. He obviously had to get cooperation from the Russians along the way. Mm. He had to have some cooperation with the Japanese on the other side to re receive the refugees. It was refugees. an international smuggling operation. Yes, basically, basically. But in the end, he did defy the Japanese government, and he was considered by Japan to be kind of a bad guy for but he quite got, a while. But he got to the end of the war, meaning Japan was uh, defeated. Yes. So what? Where? Where did he stand at the end? Did he? Did he return to Japan? He returned to Japan for a while. He was given like he was fired. So uh -huh. I, I think he was even like a janitor for a while or something. Oh, wow. um, he spoke Russian fluently, so he ended up working in Russia mm -hmm. for a lot of years away from his family and everything, just to make enough money to send to his and family. Is any of the 
immigrants grandchildren or whatever still live in in japan did anyone stay there from the as far as i know not really mm-hmm. not really i mean they are all over the world many 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 in the new york area and in the united states there are many in israel also actually super interesting and when did he uh, and my my father-in-law actually uh, spoke fluent japanese because wow. uh, because he lived there for a while and his what he did for as a living once he you know he made it to new york eventually as uh, he opened up a pearl business and he his partner was in japan and he had established that connection when he was in japan do, do you speak japanese no not oh, okay. really actually okay. i mean i do a bit yeah just because i've toured there so much and i just thought it'd be amazing if you guys could talk if you and your father-in-law could talk yeah in, uh, oh, well Japanese. he died long before uh, I, I was in the picture unfortunately ah, really? yeah uh, i'm sorry <laughs> so sugihara did he went i mean like when did he what ended up happening when did he pass away he passed away in the late 80s or early 90s and he never did he get to meet the the people he, that he, he learned that he had saved more than four people you know he, he i guess he may have known about quite a few of them but certainly he never had any idea of the breath or yes right i see yeah Certainly not. Wow. Certainly and are not. You, uh, he has family that you're in touch with today? Yes. So he only has one living son still. His name is Nobuki. And uh, yeah, lovely, lovely man. And it's like a spitting image of his father. Really. Wow. It's, wow. It's, oh, it's almost eerie. It's almost eerie. And he speaks very eloquently about his father. He goes around the world now quite a bit to speak about his father. And I don't know if you got a chance to look at the clip. Um, there is a documentary being made right now about my pursuit mm-hmm. of this project. And we went to Lithuania and filmed like all on location there. We filmed here, obviously. There, we did a lot of interviews with Nobuki, the son. We were supposed to go to Japan in February, but that didn't quite work out. Um, <laughs> Hopefully not on a cruise ship. Uh, oh, well, you want to well, hear something? Crazy. I was supposed to be on a cruise ship in Asia oh in, in, uh, in the end of February, like... Like like a super like a super high luxury cruise ship. I have this group that I do with three other girls, and they asked us to be the featured performer. It's like we were getting paid a ton of money, and it was like it was, and I'm like, I don't know. Like <laughs> you heard about this coronavirus thing? It's it's kind of bad in Asia, and they're like, no no no, we should go. We'll be fun. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Wow. And you ended up canceling it. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. How will anyone go to a cruise ship anymore after this? Well, I mean, there right? was that Italian one, right? And then people kept going. And now this one. And people are going to keep going, man. People don't I, I learn don't, their lessons I, about cruise ships. I don't get it. Like, I'm not saying anyone deserves to die. But, like, who would be so stupid to go on a cruise ship right now? Like, why? Why? I, I don't know why you would go on a cruise <laughs> ship to have begin a good with. Friend. Well, there's that too. I have a good friend. He he was on a trip in Japan half a year ago and he fell in love with a girl who's an American, but she lives there. And now, after the whole coronavirus thing, like a few weeks ago, he said, fuck it. He just took a plane and went to live with her in Tokyo. Ah, yeah, that's right. What's his name? Oli. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he just he moved there. He moved there and well, everybody Japan's were doing like... pretty well. Actually, Japan's doing pretty well. Now, in retrospect, but, you know, at in real time, time yeah. you didn't really know. Yeah. 
But uh, and if you have a Jewish mother, like if I went to my mom and I was like, "Listen, mom, I'm going to to China or Japan or whatever." It wouldn't whatever. be Corona that killed her, <laughs> <laughs> or me. Yeah. I was thinking about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'd be the dead one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, and also shows is an issue, right? So who knows What's when an issue? Per- performances? Oh well, like like this is it's like a, a happy problem. talk. I don't know if we want to go down that dark road, but yeah, they're they're. There is a huge issue with classical music, which is not only do we have the whole problem with social distancing and like when are concerts happening again and concert halls when you can you know, be in a packed place like that. Our audiences tend to be the very Fragile. same group that's considered high risk. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're like 65 and in a classical concert, you're on the young end of the spectrum, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to say that you don't have any young people at classical concerts, but they tend to be on the older side. Yeah. And I don't know when anybody in that age group is ever going to feel safe again. You know, even even if we, if and when we get the vaccine, let's say two years from now, everybody's vaccinated, everything's just like you're out of the habit of going. You're already like like the whole thing. It's I I I really fear for our industry. I don't. You know, there's a lot of. In, People are trying to find innovative ways of getting music out there. Um, I'm talking to people about trying to do online concerts and like do really high, um, high production valued online concerts. But it's not the same thing. It's going to mm-hmm. be very difficult. And even just on the shorter term, like I have all these concerts planned all over the world in the next year. Well, what's going to happen? I mean, even things get a little bit better now. September, October rolls around, virus starts coming back again. What are you going to do? Fly somewhere two weeks before and quarantine and play and then leave and come back? I mean, it doesn't, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. It's really an issue. It's really. Uh, which brings up, I wonder if like, has classical music in general been taking kind of a dip? Like, I feel like. From Corona or from No, just, just before even. I feel like it's kind of the, like the future generations i wonder like how much classical music has well you're young guys you tell me how do you feel about classical music how much connection do you have to it my, my father plays uh, piano oh He's, does he? he i mean not like uh, professionally but he grew up uh uh studying piano and he plays and we have a uh like uh not a grand piano but what's the baby the, grand a baby grand in the house bigger than that one yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a baby grand in the house even though my parents moved to israel to a much smaller house than they had in the States. My mother refused to give it up. So All it takes right. up like half of the living room, <laughs> but they kept it. Um, and they tried to teach us piano, but we, we, uh, we didn't stick with it. Um, and so I love classical music, but I don't think I'm at, you know, I'm not some kind of connoisseur, but I wonder how much of an audience kind of there is in future generations. How do you connect the young generations to classical music? I think that's the, the big question. Well, that is the big question. It's been a big question for, for years now. And I mean, honestly, like all the, um, I, I guess a lot of the, the crossover music that I've done is in some ways an attempt to reach new audiences or to reach bigger audiences. I mean, obviously Pink the Beatles is not going to bring in a young audience, but you know, yeah. they're, they're, we, I've certainly done my fair share of uh, doing the kind of music that I think is more appealing to greater, a bigger audience. Um, in my opinion, my optimistic opinion, I think that maybe we can find a way. I mean, 
let me ask you. Okay, so I I, I haven't asked you yet. Where if you, well, you tell me. What's your connection to classical music? Do you have any? Very do you have, slim. Do you have any desire to listen to classical music? Sometimes, or? rare, seldomly. <laughs> no, look, I can tell you that my mother is a kindergarten teacher for the ages zero to two, and uh, she's the only one I think in Israel that every morning, the morning starts with uh, classical music. Beautiful. So Beautiful. I, uh, yeah, so that's a value for her. Um, but you know, I, it's a, it's a problem. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, because everything's in. You know, everybody wants like that sound, that like short. You know, yeah, instantaneous. It's very, hard. it's very hard. Like I, like it's hard to watch a a, a movie now. A, yeah, a Fellini movie or. A, well, it, was, movie. it was hard to watch a Fellini movie no, even when they were made. <laughs> no, no. Actually, they are pretty good. But the older ones, it's hard. Or a Hitchcock movie, even. It's hard. Right, it's right. The it's, same a, it's, problem. A it's the same problem. And you don't have, I feel, like all the classic music that everybody's talking about is, is the, the classic right. one. So I have three things to say about that. Maybe if young composers would... Yeah. Okay, so that was that was going to be one of my points. One, let's go back to Coronaville, okay? Maybe now is the opportunity or the time to find the way to, to connect to people. Because I do think part of the problem, maybe especially like someone like you that has been exposed to more classical music, is that if you're going to be like, oh, I want to listen to some classical music, well, what classical music? What? Like, which composer, what piece, like Today what player, what... Today you just go what... to Spotify and write classical. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to do this, that <laughs> but actually. It's, but, but it's so it's, hard to, to understand really, what's for right. me, what's the good fit for me. Absolutely. I think that if, as classical musicians and performers, if we can find ways to make it more user-friendly, to make it appealing, because I don't think it's that people don't want to listen to classical music. It's, just, it's, like, it's like going into a huge museum and seeing all, all these thousands of paintings and just not knowing where where to go, what to look for, you know, it's just, it's too vast, it's too Choice removed. overload. Choice yeah. overload, and also just too removed, too, mm -hmm. too removed from your everyday lives to even know where to go. So maybe there's innovative ways of, of finding ways to connect to people that way. Two, new music. People, music that's being written today that, ha that, that shares the ethos and the feelings and the atmosphere of what's going on today, something that can be written, that can connect you because it feels present. That's important. That's why one of the reasons I do so much new music, right? And one of the reasons I wanted to do this project, this Sylvia Hard project, is I, I've always uh, liked to commission new works. Three, why do I want to do something like a Sylvia Hard project? There's something about just playing a long 45-minute piece for cello, orchestra, and choir. It's not going to do it for most people, right? You're going to go, hey, want to come hear the newest cello concerto? I mean, I do. Oh. <laughs> okay, all right. You're a rare bird. Are you inviting me? Like, are we... <laughs> I would definitely invite you. But um, I, I think that in a way, having the context of having this amazing story uh, that has a connection to so many people and so many different levels, it's a great composer is writing the piece. If music like that can be written that can connect to people on various levels and in various ways, They'll be open. They'll be open to listening to, open to being able to feel what's being given to them. And somehow that might be a conduit or a way to find find it into people's hearts and souls. I mean, pop music even, like why, why do people like it? So the words speak to people, right? Mm -hmm. The words or the, the feeling or the rage or the, you know, whatever emotion is that they're trying to convey. 
somehow it, it, it resonates with people. Even, you know, it might be on a different level, but it's, it still resonates with people. I think I, I, I always like to do projects or pieces or music or big things. Sorry. Big themes or little themes that can connect to people uh, on various levels. Amazing. I mean, okay. it's optimistic. Yeah. It's, it's good to have a it's bit what of optimism we need. now. Nowadays, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I grew up a lot in California. I smile a lot. Okay. <laughs> That's why you get along here. The weather is uh, <laughs> similar. Similar. Yes, yeah. It's true. Okay. Thank you so much. So, um, pe when pe can people listen, tune in? your work oh, your own well, social media your i found yes, you on spotify did you find me on spotify yeah, yeah but there's not much there's yeah a lot of album. my yeah two like I, there's yeah the my two cds that i was going to bring you one of them is specifically not on spotify because the producer didn't want to pay the fees or something for it mm. but <laughs> i know but you can find it's all over amazon and youtube and I'm, I'm all over youtube you can find okay. like a million uh, you're on instagram facebook instagram facebook okay yeah Yeah, and I told you I was excited that uh, one of my videos just hit two million views. So. Okay, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but also nice. you guys can look up uh, the Sugihara project, right? Um, Or I'm is actually it not no, yet? it's not. I mean, I'm actually putting up a website okay. for it very soon. Okay. So uh, stay tuned on social media. And yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Perfect. Amazing. It, which is wait, Christina with a K, like you said, and with then, a K, no Christ in it at no all. No Christ, <laughs> no Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> bereft of Jesus. So Christina with a K, and then Raiko is R E I K O. Raiko like right. Seiko. Mm -hmm. Raiko. Christina Raiko Cooper. Cooper. All right, yeah. guys, check it out. Really, some some really good stuff. It Thank you amazing. so much for having me, especially in these Thank difficult you. times. Thanks for coming. I have to say, it's the first. Uh, Uh, like interview or webcast I've ever done where one person was drinking a bottle of beer. So it makes me, <laughs> well, we I think it's pretty cool. We offered you one. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually, usually I'm not drinking a lot. Actually, usually I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> just, just generally. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but thank you, you just really. get a glimpse. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Thanks for, being, for coming. For thank before we go, me. yes, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. In Los Angeles, they're at jewishjournal.com, so check them out. Um, they have podcasts. Mm -hmm. They have Corona Times podcasts. They have <laughs> articles, op-eds, everything you need to know about the Jewish world and about Israel. You can check them out, jewishjournal.com. Also, also, Israel National News, Arut Sheva, guys. We have a collaboration with them. Check them out, israelnationalnews.com. They have great content, columns. Check them out. They're also on Facebook. Sometimes we're live with them on Facebook. IsraelNationalNews.com and, and finally we accept donations so please help us out go to 2NGB.com slash donate and send some money in our direction <laughs> please thank you so much thank you thank you Christina thank you guys bye stay bye. safe bye, bye.